0: Hello and welcome to 20 Tim Minutes, a podcast that focuses on mental health in a serious but yet humorous way. Listen as I interview a wide variety of guests where we show our support as well as sharing our own personal struggles and stories with mental health. I am your host, Tim McCarthy, and now it's time to talk about it. Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is Tim McCarthy, host of the podcast 20 Tim Minutes. I have a special guest on today. He's a man who battled and won against his addictions, a cancer survivor, and an actor who is most famous for his role as Eddie Munster. On the Munsters, the legendary Butch Patrick. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. No, thank you for taking the time to talk with me. This is a real honor. As being a big Munsters fan, it's a real big honor.
1: I can tell with your Munster Go Home poster off your right shoulder.
0: Yep, and I got uh, I got Herman hanging around. <laughs> it's perfect. I got I got these things in the other room. My my Munsters uh, Funko pops. Oh,
1: your so. uh, vinyls.
0: Yeah, they're in front of my TV. Those are those are elite.
1: Oh well, yeah, those are th- that, those themselves are quite a phenomena. They're almost like uh, the uh, Beanie Babies thing. Yeah. You know, they're just, they're crazy popular.
0: Crazy popular. They're not gonna. They're not gonna be worth anything in like ten years.
1: (laughs) No, I don't think. I think they will be. Um, (laughs) Unlike any babies.
0: (laughs) Butch, this is a bit cliche, but let's start from the beginning with you. You were a child actor for one of the greatest shows of all time. What was it like being a child actor in Hollywood, where there was pretty much no rules and it's lawless in the '60s and '70s?
1: Well, uh, in my particular life, a couple things. You know, a lot of people will say, you know, when did you decide to become an actor? And, And you know, very few children, in my opinion, actually go to their parents and say, I want to be an actor. I'm sure it occurred, but most of the time it's just a accidental situation that presents itself that it's, you stumble into it, you know, and that's exactly what happened to me. Um, the actual story was Mary Grady who became like the go-to first child agent in Hollywood was working for another agency and she wanted to open up the first kids agency. So she had a friend who knew my mom's, um, husband who wanted to be mayor so this guy wanting to be mayor thought it would be a good idea to get my dad's endorsement and by doing that he wanted to put my little sister into the movies and i went along that day for the ride to the photographer and during that photography shoot the gentleman when he was done his name was amos carr he looked over me and he goes he's got a good look you mind if i put a little hat on him and take a picture just for my files and my mom goes yeah sure go ahead so he put that picture in his studio window up on the Sunset Boulevard, Hollywood Boulevard, wherever it was. And about a month later, a producer and director happened to be walking by, and and they looked over and they were still, they happened to be casting a movie. So all these occurrences had to fall into line and they basically sought me out. And then Mary called and said, look, we got these people that have do this movie up the 20th. Would Butch be interested in going on an interview? Now I'm, I'm in the second grade. So it's like, I'm not making major decisions, but I agreed to go on the interview and they, I read my lines. I wasn't intimidated, and I had a good memory, and one thing led to another, and they offered me this part, and that was my first role, and it was a great little B-movie starring Eddie Albert, Jane Wyatt, Brenda Lee, and Soupy Sales, and it gave me six weeks experience, which, you know, got me comfortable with doing it, and during that time, I also picked up a Kellogg's Cornflakes commercial, which won an award for being, like, one of the best commercials of the year, and it showed me... I was like the little kid eating eating my cereal reading from the back of the cereal box, so it focused on me a lot. And then after that I picked up the real McCoy's in general hospital and one thing led to another.
0: You were on General Hospital?
1: The first episode ever. And the first maybe the first 15 episodes, yeah.
0: No kidding. Um, being on the Munsters, did you know at the time it was gonna be such a big hit?
1: No. No, we didn't. Uh, it was very, very unusual. And there and here's another example of, of Falling into that falling into that character uh, and that and that role. I was living in Illinois. My stepdad, who we mentioned earlier with the Angels, had gotten traded to the Washington Senators. So the family moved to DC. I landed in Illinois with my grandmother in the fifth grade, and they had they had cast a movie with a kid named Happy Durman. The networks turned it down. Bill Mooney was offered the role before Happy Derman, and he didn't want to do it because of the makeup. So by proxy, so to speak, I came in, I came into the thing and then they flew me out for a screen test with Yvonne DiCarlo, who they wanted to bring in to replace Joan Marshall for the pilot. One thing led to another, me and Yvonne tested, they hired me. Now I'm in California with no family. Where do I, you know, how do I get to work every day? So what I did is I moved in with my uncle who would pick me up at the airport for the interview. And, uh, we hired a woman to take me to work every day. And then once a month I would fly back to DC to visit my family. So that was kind of a winding up in this in this role that would define my my life practically was accidental at, at, at that at the most too so it's, it's very uh, my my particular career i was never an actor i just happened to be a kid who was comfortable in the acting role but i was looking to do it as a long term my, my end game was getting enough money to buy a race car and be a race car driver that was always my plan
0: i love it uh, how old were you at this time for the monsters i had just turned 11. That's fantastic. So you didn't even want to be an actor, really. You go there and you're like, oh, I killed it. I
1: told everybody when I was a kid actor that I would quit the day I was 18 because the day you become 18, you have, you, know, you don't have the child labor laws protecting you. So to me, it was always, well, as soon as I'm 18, I'm out of here. You guys work too
0: hard. Now, with child stars, there's always like a stigma behind it because usually when they, they grow up, they hit a lot of snags in their career and they, they turn to drugs and alcohol. Did that happen with you?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, and... And a lot of it has to do with the timing and the 60s and the 70s and being in the right area to where bad behavior was considered to be okay. But it was really, it wasn't only Hollywood. The whole country was like, you know, when I was 12, 13, 14 years old, I'll give you an example. I did a movie for Chuck Jones called The Phantom Booth in 68. And we filmed the opening and the closing in San Francisco and we're driving by Haight-Ashbury, you know, which is like this, the ground zero for the psychedelic boom and the Grateful Dead. And, I mean, this is what's going on in the counterculture situation back then because from the from 64 to 68, that four-year window, you know, if you just look at the, what happened in four years of the way people looked and their hair and their dress and everything, it was a huge explosion of everybody was tuning in, turning on, and dropping out. And getting high, and that was what everybody was want- looking to do. Woodstock was, you know, anyway. It was just, it was there. And if you had that desire, which I did, you uh, it was it was a it was a very good place to be if you wanted to um, experiment, which I did.
0: Did anyone get you into it, or are you just like you know what this is what I want to do? You like you said, you nope. saw too many Jimi Hendrix uh, concerts. I, Go again? No, I saw I sought it out. How, how did you sort it out at that age? What age did you start? Well, I was 15
1: and we, I just done an Adam 12 of all things, uh, where I played a kid that slashed the cops tires. And while I was on that shoot, i I befriended, I'm, I'm not going to name names, but I befriended another person who lived in the Valley and he had an older brother and an older sister and his dad had a very cool job in Beverly Hills with the, with the in scene and all this stuff. So I remember very vividly, I say, you know, how much for a joint, how much for a red and how much for, you know, I was like, you know, supermarket shopping and everything was like 25 cents. It was like really cheap. Really? So I, I remember that that was, and plus, you know, you're sneaking cigarettes out of your mom's purse and just all this stuff. And, you know, the liquor cabinet wasn't locked. So you'd you know, make a concoction of all these crazy and stupid little drinks because you didn't want any bottle to be less than the other bottle. So you would put seven or eight half shots into a mixing bowl and smart. Anyway, it was just, it was crazy, but that was how I started
0: um, experimenting, yeah. What are some of the drugs that you took?
1: Everything. Everything except, uh, I never did heroin, and I never put a needle on
0: my arm. Now, did you do quaaludes? I was Mr. Qualude. <laughs> <laughs> what like what now, was that like? Because I feel like that's like a... Uh, I, like a I, I had one.
1: 500 milligram capsules. The, the, the normal roar was 325 in a pill form, and I had loose i had capsules that looked like you know uh you know, like a vitamin that was 500 milligrams and the fact that they were only 90 cents a piece
0: eddie months at 15 doing quaaludes that's uh no no
1: that's 15. that didn't happen no that didn't happen until i was in my 20s
0: okay okay a little, a little bit better but not great <laughs> No, no, I progressed
1: slowly through it. I started off with, that's another thing people don't understand too, is, you know, it's it, it was like you start off with weed and a, a pill here or a pill there. And I never really was a big pill person. It wasn't really my deal. The Quaaludes I kind of fell into my lap and it was just a money-making opportunity. And, and plus, everybody was looking for Quaaludes back then. It was like this mystery drug that nobody knew what they were for, but everybody had to have them. And to this day, you know, to this day, they're one of the, the few drugs that the F, you know, the FDA never had a purpose for them. They were really just fabricated to get people in the call them fender benders, you know,
0: that's uh, that's very interesting. Um, that's funny at all. So how was it growing up with like, you getting all this money? How, how much were you getting paid back then? Like, what, so weeds about uh, 25 cents. So what are you making
1: <laughs> at that age? It, it was under a thousand a week, but it was, it was pretty decent money. Uh, I made more money than my dad, the pro, my stepdad who played pro ball. Wow. And he was a professional baseball player. And the reason I say that, it gives you an idea of how things have changed in the whole, you know, movie star money, baseball player money back in the old days. You know, you didn't make a whole lot more than the average guy who was a plumber or a mechanic. You know, it was maybe made twice or three times more. Not like today where you get a 20 million dollar contract and you're making hundreds and hundreds more you know, t- of times times the money of an average joe because in the old days you know most baseball players had a job in the off season
0: right now to back up a little bit so do you think weed is a gateway drug do what do you think weed is a gateway drug oh, uh, no uh actually
1: alcohol was alcohol always led me to the other things alcohol was my go to thing and that was soon as i if i never drank alcohol i probably wouldn't have tried the other stuff but but the, the the alcohol, the beer basically, beer is where I started. And that's what kind of send me down the path.
0: Right. And impairs your judgment. So why not? People handing you drugs are like, oh, I'll take this.
1: I used to, it was all about adjusting. If I had a beer, then I wanted to have something else to balance it out, and then I'd go this way, then I'd go this way. And it's just it was a never-ending cycle of wanting to adjust. The, uh, the mood or just the television set you're watching I like to use that as an analogy it's, and that's one of the reasons why I finally got sober which we'll cover is yeah. how I came to get sober was the fact that I learned to not need to adjust my my thoughts you know be happy where I was at.
0: For people listening right now, Butch is uh, 11 plus years sober. So congrats to you, sir, for still... Yeah,
1: 11 and a half 41 years of partying, uh, 11 and a half, yeah, 11 11 and five, and and back. And then here's another thing you're talking about. You got to remember, 1969 was a real pivotal year for a lot of things. And for me, I turned 16, got my first real girlfriend and had a love affair, and then they landed on the moon. September I got my license in August I'm driving up the Hollywood Boulevard you know the top of sunset um in Laurel Canyon my girlfriend lived up there Charlie Manson was running a so you had Manson in the hillside nearby uh craziness of uh, the moon landing I got my license I got my girlfriend and then in September the same friend who I mentioned earlier from Adam 12 I drove him to an interview and during the interview the guy the producer came out and looked at me and he, he then interviewed me even though I was just the Uber driver that day and I wound up getting that part. And then four days later, I was in Brazil with no teacher and no parent. And all I had to do was show up for work every day in this movie, which I did. But after I was done working, I was a 16 year old kid with a pocket full of money in Salvador, Bahia, Brazil for three months. And that's when everything went wide open. And in fact, as my sister would mention that my AA chip meetings, she says he left as Richie Cunningham and he came back as John Lennon.
0: Oh, that's a great, I like that a lot. People, yeah. don't, people don't know this from happy days. Remember when Richie Cunningham had a brother, he went upstairs and he just never came back down. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 It's a funny. i was talking to Clint Howard the other day and Clint and I are friends. And, uh, but, it, but that's what, that's what it happened. I left in September. I came back in December six, the end of 69 and all everything all bets were off i was a whole different person and it was uh, it was it was party time party central and then that led to me kind of phasing out of the business because you know i'm smoking joints on the way to interviews which is not a good idea and um it was kind of like i lost my professional edge it was all i wanted to do is party and i just didn't you know like i was going to this hollywood professional school uh that that because when I went to Brazil, Gardena High wouldn't allow me to leave that long without uh, losing a grade. So I didn't want to lose a grade. So I went to this Hollywood professional school, which catered to Hollywood kids. So I would send, supposedly, send them my homework, which I never did. I blamed it on Brazilian mail. I said, Oh, I sent, you know, I sent I sent it in every week. You didn't get any of it? No. So they let me pass and I, uh, I made it through there. And, um, that's kind of how everything just kind of created this whole era. From the time I was 16 to 18 was craziness because I was living like an adult. Uh, I was still at home, but my, but I was never home. You know what I mean?
0: Addiction obviously is a serious topic, but looking back on it in hindsight, it it, it is interesting because I, I just picture Butch Patrick like on drugs and the, there's a moon landing and Charles Manson is running amok and you're probably like, what the fuck is going on in the world right now?
1: Yeah, it was, I mean, it was great cars, and I'm going to the drag strip, and, and the funny part, it was a little bit before that, when my dad was playing pro ball, you know, I had this idyllic lifestyle, I was at the studio, roaming the back lot of Universal, rubbing elbows with everybody, having a wonderful time, cruising down to George Barris' shop, seeing the best cars, going to the ballpark early, you know, shagging flies, getting to know all the p- major players and all the teams, because everybody, the Munsters were real popular, oh, yeah. So, the other teams would take you into their dugout and let you sit around and hit your pop-ups. And, you know, it was like, I couldn't have asked for a better childhood, you know, literally it was like, gosh, you know.
0: And that was your stepfather, correct? Stepfather, Ken Hunt. Yes. So what was, uh, what was your father like growing up? Your birth father? I didn't actually know my dad. My
1: mom and my dad, when I was born, they kind of separated. They were like high school sweethearts, and uh, it just didn't work out. So I stayed with my mom and and my grandma and my uncle. They had a house, and that's where you know that's pretty much where I grew up until my mom got married to Dave, who adopted me uh, when Michelle was born, and that's kind of where I remember. Now I I connected with my biological father when I was about ten years old, and we became friends and stayed friends for the rest of his life. So that was all right. but it was just it was a very unusual situation. I was, you know, I, it, it. Everybody says, "Did you did you have a bad childhood?" And I said, "No, I didn't have a bad childhood. I just had a very un- unusual childhood."
0: I understand what that is. I also found out I had a biological father after an ancestry test, so I know how <laughs> I know how those homes work.
1: Well, I also I could see myself because when I, when Alan you know he's driving a Corvette, he's living at the beach. I go get weed from him. I mean, literally, I could see myself in him. I go, well, this is where my this is where I, my genes. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing because I was pretty much born into it. And that that doesn't make him a bad guy. It just you, you just sort of see the writing on the wall that you know, same car, same lifestyle, same habits, same type of girlfriends. And, you know, this is who I am.
0: Did you who are you starstruck more with uh, baseball players or actors and actresses? Who, who is there anyone that stands out? You like holy shit uh
1: there's a bit i i met i like to say there's three people maybe four people who, who that i remember that i was maybe at the time but in hindsight now i was really lucky to have met i met walt disney uh when i was doing some disney work but i actually met him before i actually started any of his movies because i was a little kid at the whenever there would have the uh the, the, world, the, the Wonderful World of Disney would be like the sign-off show on Sunday nights. Everybody would watch. It was you know color TV had just come out, and I did a little thing where I'm supposed to be the kid watching the Main Street Parade, and he picks me up. Goes, what do you think, little Billy? Oh, gee, Mister Disney, I think it's his Thunderball. Now I went on to actually work for Disney after that, but that's how I met him. Then I met um, Rod Serling, and my my favorite all time show has always been The Twilight Zone, and I met him briefly at Paramount when I was doing Lidsville, and. I was really looking forward to meeting him. And when I when I walked up to him and met him briefly, it was like, I get it now. And I was polite and I left. And I go, he definitely has something going on beyond what we have known as normal humans. I think he might have like alien connections. I really do. Because because number one, I was always admired the stuff he would write was just so cool. But number two, looking at it, he I just felt that he had some kind of go- something going on that, that beyond the normal human existence. So I think he might have extra ter- extraterrestrial, you know, blood in him or something. I don't know. And then the last one was Evil Knievel. Oh. When I did the uh, the little Caesar's commercials meeting Evil cuz he was like larger than life, you know. I I can I figured he probably was like a Muhammad Ali. I never had the pleasure of meeting Muhammad Ali, but that kind of presence when you walk into a room. And um I mean, you got to imagine look what this guy did. I mean, he was like, you know, just doing wheelies and jumping bushes. He would fill a stadium with 100,000 people for hours, and they would pay to watch him jump stuff. And then, and literally, he was like the last, of, the last of the showman, daredevil type guys. You know, he was huge. And I got to know him and became friends with him. It was like, really, I mean, I really knew him well. He loaned me his helmet, you know. I, I'd go do like a go-kart race. i have an evil, Knievel helmet on. You know, people would like, get out of my way.
0: Without Evil Knievel, Jackass wouldn't be around. I feel like. Absolutely.
1: Yeah.
0: That, now with the Twilight Zone, I feel like that's an underrated show. I, we're going to go back to your life growing up, but I just got to a- ask a quick question about the Twilight Zone. What's your favorite episode? Yeah. Oh,
1: that's a, I probably uh, there's so there's so many of them. I, I love I love the one for some reason the one Willoughby resonates really well for me. The guy that's just he's pressured, 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 and all he wants to do is go back to a simpler time. And it kind of reminds me when I was living with my grandmother in this small town and I'd go back and forth between Hollywood and Hollywood would be high pressure and all this stuff. And then I'd go back to this small town and I used to always wonder, you know, who's better off? You know, the the person that supposedly is successful with the big car or the person that is going to the ice cream social in the park and a much slower pace time. And then also one of my favorites is, um, well, you know, Anthony, Bill Mooney's, you know, It's a Good Life is a great one. Uh and then also I like the one with Burgess Meredith at you know, uh time at last when he gets the, the librarian after the nuclear holocaust and he steps on his glasses and all he wanted to do was read and now he can't even read.
0: The so- iron.
1: There's there's so many I could go on for hours with with different ones.
0: Right. I feel like most people's favorite is the pig ma- the, the pig faces or the alien faces when they uh she, he gets uh constructive surgery on her face.
1: Oh, is that like Donna, the Donna Douglas? I think so. I'm I'm pretty sure i is that like the a- one where she, they, they finally do and they and they all look like they yeah. all look like pigs and she's normal. Yeah, yeah that's not Unless That's a good one.
0: That's a classic one. All right, let's back up a little bit. Uh so you're partying, doing drugs. How was it the party scene growing up and, and going with that? But then second of all, like did you realize you had a problem and when was that?
1: No, what happened was, is I always just wanted to be accepted by my peers, you know, um, and the, the, one of the ways I was doing that was by throwing parties, and I had my Mach 1, and I'm down at the gas station, I, my mom would, you know, she would enable me a little bit by, you know, if I wanted a case of beer, she would buy me a case of beer, I would then take it down to the gas station where all the guys would be working on their cars, and you get to know people, and then I was got to be the go-to guy, if you needed weed or something, I would use they have it um, all the way to high school through that time, that type of thing. Um, but you got to remember, back then it was it wasn't a money making venture. It was just giving, buying it, selling it to your friends, and breaking even. So it was just it wouldn't cost you anything, and that way it was on the whole mindset of the whole you know tune in and share a joint. There wasn't it wasn't a uh, it, w- it wasn't paying the bills. It was it was simply trying not to spend money on it. It was like a break-even deal. And that's what that was actually kind of fun. And it was a whole different mindset back then. And that's how the hippie movement was all about, you know, sharing this and sharing that. When it became a when, when it became a monetary game thing, the whole dynamic of the whole world changed a lot, where it became very dangerous and it became, you know, the criminal the activity and, and the and the law kind of caught up with it. Because back in the day when I was doing nobody thought you know anything was wrong with it it was like it's just a lifestyle it was like people are living in communes and growing it it was just you know it wasn't a big problem but um that's for me was a way for me to get to know my friends and be accepted by everybody in school was to be the guy that do the great parties which i did
0: did everyone get excited when they met you they're like oh my god you're eddie monster some did some uh, yeah most not excited i wouldn't say excited
1: curious a little bit but most kids um there's a lot of bullying going on. You know, I was a little guy, and people by nature, kids especially, could be very, you know, jealous or snide, or, you know, you could be the butt of their jokes. And, you know, they would want to make themselves look better amongst their peers by choosing you as a target, and it would be easy. But they, I had very thick skin. And they, um, in fact, when I, went, when I went back into junior high school after the Munsters, the problem was during nutrition, after nutrition, I was in a school of 3,500 students big junior high school, and it was a melting pot. We had about 25% white, 25% black, 25% Asian, and 25% Spanish, Mexican. So everybody, every kind of thing was represented, every kind of nationality. But after t- nutrition, these kids wouldn't go back to class. They'd all hang around and poke fun at me while I was sitting on my little snack bench, you know, eating a, a honey bun with my orange juice. So they decided the easiest way for me to, the e- easiest way for them to fix this problem was to uh, just expel me, get me off the property, which they did. And I had an option, I had an opportunity. I could go back to school uh and face the music or I could go to a private school. And I didn't want to go to a private school. I wanted to go to a public school because I wanted to be accepted. So we made an arrangement where I went back, we gave it another two day two days, and the crowds became smaller and smaller and smaller every day. And by the end of the week, it was pretty much back to normal. But to this day, fifty-seven years later, there's still people that come knock on my mom's door. Is this where Eddie Munster lives? You know, so we still own the same house.
0: That's funny. Now I, I'll say this: short people are elite. I'm five seven. I'm a short guy. I know how it is to get picked on. No one else too. Short people live forever because have you ever seen like a six five like eighty nine year old? It's always the short <laughs> guys that live.
1: <laughs> look at how look at how uh, look at how long little people live in Hollywood. Like
0: yeah kids <laughs> yeah, they lollipop guild they, they were like 90 year olds like doing the dance
1: yeah, I, yeah i've got longevity in my family we just lost my uncle at 92 and then two years before that my aunt peggy was 93 and then aunt betty was 95 and my grandma lived into her 90s and her mom lived into, into her 90s so yeah i'm uh, i'm 68 right now so i got i figure
0: i got another 20 years left and, and Butch, you look great my man you look great When you you. when you when you were getting older and you were drinking and and feeling bad because it's only been eleven years you've been sober so how was that like have you been inspiring anybody like what happened?
1: Well, um, yeah, I suppose one of the one of the deals of my sobriety was I had been tippy toeing around the issue for years. I had a friend, a high school friend, who got sober about. 12 years before i did and then i had a cousin who lived next door who got sober about seven years before i did between those two people i every once in a while when i wake up feeling really bad and, and know that you know you know it, it, the the deal was it was like you want to just have another day like this which sometimes it's easier than to say i've been doing it wrong for 40 years and, and face the music and look in the mirror but every once in a while i would sort of reach out and inquire just sort of curiosity little little inquiries and let anybody knows you know you can't make anybody change until they want to change so that's kind of how it started with inquiring about my with my friend chris and with mike about how their sobriety was going and then finally in uh, 2010 um right around thanksgiving um the situation happened to where I, w- I had done a project that and that, I mean, literally, I was in the at that point, I was like not able to go to a sleep cycle without drinking. I would wake up about three in the morning and have to power three beers to get back to sleep. And I'm drinking about 30 beers a day at that point. And I had lost the kidney in '76, uh, not due to drinking, but due to like a motorcycle dirt bike accident where a handlebar punched me in the side and my kidney just got larger and larger. So they they removed it. But I went about my life uh, as, you know, that's why you have two. You can, you can live with one. But I continued drinking and drinking and drinking. And um, then what happened at that time was a place called Oasis uh, Treatment Center in Anaheim, right next to Disneyland, one of my favorite places. Um, they, a, a friend of mine, opened the Yellow Pages in California to look for Treatment Center. And it just so happened that it, this is like a God shot. opened up. Oasis was on the page. It was the first thing he saw. Not an A, not a C. Just Oasis, and he called him out of the blue. And the woman that answered, um, Stacy, who was administration's, she basically he said, "I got a Butch Patrick, Eddie Munster." She was, "Oh my gosh, you got to wait for the, hold on, hold on. I got to get Jim, you know, the owner of the center." And he got on the phone and he basically wanted to work. He wanted he wanted to treat a kid actor uh, real badly because he knew if he could get them sober that they could spread the word and help get the word out by television and media so it was kind of like he was using me as a tool and i was if i would come out there he would sponsor me because it was like thirty-five thousand dollars. i didn't have insurance so the deal was i flew out to just check the place out for a couple weeks nearby where my mom and everybody lived i didn't really plan on staying you know it was a 90-day program and i figured after a few weeks i kind of knew enough and I want to leave. And then they put you on the porch. They they call porch you to where you go out. And the tr- counselor would say, you know, why are you in such a hurry to leave? What do you got? You know, where are you going? Why, you know, why don't you know, is there anything wrong? And They talk you off the ledge. And after about six weeks, I dropped the rock and um, had gotten enough education to where I knew this is what I where I wanted to stay and sobriety. And this is why. And then they gave you the tools to work it because the old saying is, you know, anybody can get sober, the trick is staying sober. And, um, and that's kind of how it, it happened. It was just happenstance, right phone call, right place, right people. Um, and then Jim, who I'm very good friends with still, and um, I, he asked me, he says, if you do what I say and, and learn and do this thing properly, you can reach millions of people. And he goes, in my 22 years, I've reached like 8,000 people and you can do you know, so much good for people by um, just playing it forward and being um, visible about it. You know, it's called AA, but that was back in, th- in the '30s when it was like a real stigma attached to it. Right. Nowadays, a lot of there are a lot of old school people that still feel it should be anonymous, but there's a whole lot of other people that are very uh, visible about it as well, and I'm one of those.
0: Were you nervous about coming out with that? Excuse me. Were you nervous about coming out with that?
1: No, like- not at all. That's fantastic. No, no, no. In fact, one of the things I enjoy doing is I've never, tu- I'm very proud of the fact that I've never turned down a speaker meeting uh, if I'm able. And by doing a lot of the visibility on Facebook and other social medias, I can't really sponsor people because I'm on the road so much. Mm-hmm. But I have helped a lot of people with almost one of the funny things I found out is in this day and age with the opiate epidemic and this and that and everything going on, very few families, very few people don't know someone. In their inner circle that has issues. It's pretty prevalent that almost every family has got one person, whether it be immediate family or extended family, but almost everybody knows someone that needs help. And I've helped a lot of people take that first step about how to go about getting started. And that's a big step because it, it took me nine years to figure out how to get started. And so if I can steer people towards that and the fact that i was a kid actor and now i'm an adult and now i'm doing this and i've been through it and they they can identify with that um i'm really proud of the fact that i I have a lot of people that that have reached out and have told me and i and i visited them they say you know my son's still sober and the, the trick is is to 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 let them know that the biggest thing for me was it was like there is god makes no mistakes i got spiritual and the fact is for me looking forward not looking backward it was very important.
0: Congrats sir. I'm very happy for you with that. Now how many people probably know this, you probably know this is uh alcohol is the only thing that you withdraw from that you can die from. out of all the drugs. Did you know that?
1: You you can't over, you can't OD on alcohol.
0: No, no, no. Like anything like alcohol if if you're like you're a severe alcoholic and you try to withdraw yeah. from it on on your own, you can die from that. I didn't know that. Oh yeah. That's yeah. uh, that's super interesting. Now, with all this going on, were you depressed at all? You must have been, right? No, no,
1: actually I was I was very lucky. What happened with me, and Jim told me this because a lot of people, especially people that like 41 years, uh they're very it's a very tough road. They have meetings or they're going to church. They they have a lot of day-to-day battles with the addiction and and, and the desire to use or drink he he said, Butch, you don't know how lucky you are. He goes, you had a burning bush experience to where for some reason, uh, God just eliminated all desires for you to want to use and drink and partake. And that's true. And I literally, it's like, I don't have any, it's been really easy for me. I don't take it for granted. I'm appreciative of it. And you know, I hit my knees every day and I always, you know, I'm always thankful. And I have a gratitude list and I try to have a good attitude, but the bottom line is, is, um, I've been very lucky that it's that it came easy but i stay in the moment and i don't take it for granted
0: that's fantastic sir now in between all this you were diagnosed with prostate cancer is that correct yeah that's that's
1: actually one of the funniest stories of all is i went into the, the center and there happened to be a doctor in there that was in for another unrelated matter old guy like myself a little older than me actually i was 57 i think he was 60. we became friends and as soon as I got sober, I was about three months sober, I went up for a checkup, and they found out that I had a very high uh, PSI number, or PSA number, I guess, PSA number, and a very small mass. And they thought it had spread into my uh, my bone marrow. And I go, isn't this amazing? Here I am. I finally you know, kind of figure I'm going to straighten up, and then I get cancer, and it's going to punch my ticket right when I thought. Because I used to think when I was drinking, I go, "You know, how is this all going to end? It's not going to end well you know, real badly. And then I figured, you know, and, and the irony of it getting sober and then getting a cancer, uh, uh, death sentence. But what happened was my doctor luckily knew he's a very influential doctor and he fast tracked me into, uh, into St. John's, uh, in Santa Monica with his rockstar ninja doctor buddies. And they got me into surgery, like within a week. And had they not got me in, I was like another two weeks, I probably wouldn't have made it. So there's another God shot, you know, of situations that present themselves. So apparently uh, I'm here for a reason and uh, talking to you is a perfect example of it.
0: Yeah. And I'm glad that's happening right now. You don't understand how this much, how much this means to me that you're on with me. You seem like a guy that just uh, right place, right time for everything. Your acting career, like the uh, rehab and the cancer, like that's at least three for three.
1: Yeah, it, it, it is. And I had, uh, absolutely. There's, it's... Uh, I've had so I've been so blessed with so much good stuff and I've been so stupid and done so much bad stuff, but I've always considered myself a good person. I've never really thought I was a bad guy. Um, but that's in my mindset, you know, I used to like at the meetings, like, Oh, I never thought I was going to hurt. You know, I'm not hurting anybody. I'm only hurting myself. Well, that's, that's such BS because you know, once you get sober, you know, how much damage you did to the people that care for you. So that's, that's one of the ones, but I've had a, a miraculous run and honestly if you know if something happened to me today if i just keeled over right now i mean i wouldn't feel shortchanged but at the same time um yeah it's 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 wonderful to to be able to help other people be part of the solution not part of the problem all the um you know waking up every day with uh, money in your pocket and no hangovers and not looking around in the ashtray for you know a, a roach or or seeing if you get some remnants off the floor from the crack rock you had i mean it was just a horrible lifestyle but you know it was all for a reason and that's what keeps me sane now is i know that it's not wasted time it was just bringing me to where i'm who i am today to um,
0: help others how would you help others what is something you would recommend to someone battling with addiction right now well
1: (sighs) well by literally by example as one, um, being, talking about stuff that, you know, I'm not, I mean, it's not like I'm really proud of what I did or how I went about it. You know, I had a, you know, it's like, I had a huge career. It's like, you know, me and Ronnie Howard are doing the Smith family together. I had, I went to Brazil and he went to USC and became a film student. Well, had I not, you know, I mean, you can't beat yourself up over what you didn't do. So literally, um, if I you know, what I hope to do is I hope to well this year this summer I'm doing a residency at a place called Indiana Beach which is a theme park I have tons of ideas and marketing ideas and I'm working with this Veterans Administration thing with a gentleman out of um, Chicago who created a program to help veterans get their you know get their benefits and help them get to places that they deserve that's one of my things that I really want to do is help them I also make myself available for speaker meetings so you never know where you're going to be helping people so i know i just know by example i've helped i can't say how many but i know i've helped people so that's a good thing going on and by helping people you help yourself and you follow the rules and uh you know it's just it's just a good feeling knowing that you're you're doing you're doing good work and you're moving forward and uh and you're doing it you know you're doing it sober
0: it could be a thousand people or one person but that that's great that you've done that sir now, there's a question for you. Do you do you live with any regrets in your career, in your life?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everybody's got those. My favorite one. My favorite one is I'm at the beach surfing. Uh, a guy, an unknown guy, shows up named George uh, George Lucas. I don't know who George Lucas was. You know, I got long hair down to here, and I get out of the water, and he lays me down, and basically he, we have a conversation regarding this movie that he's doing and you know about his childhood up in uh up in middle california somewhere i don't know wherever modesto or stockton anywhere wherever american graffiti was done right. so he goes but you're gonna have to catch your hair i go oh, I that ain't gonna happen i mean i got hair like robert plant it's down to here so no nope, sorry i can't do that good luck with your little movie bye gotta go sir oh. but a year and a half later i see I'm up in Sacramento, my, visit my friend, and we go to the movie and I see American Graffiti and I went, Oh my God. I go, This is like really bad. <laughs> and so the uh, the part that he had offered me that I turned down was for Richard Dreyfuss's part, actually, the lead part in the movie. And I just, you know, said, No, no, thank you. But every actor in Hollywood has some of those stories. It, it's yeah. it's not uncommon. The funny part about it was I turned down Lidsville three different times and didn't want to do it at all. And finally wound up doing it for the wrong reasons, but you know, doing it for the paycheck and figuring everybody would be asleep on Saturday morning and no one no one would ever see this silly Saturday morning show. And here I am next month we're going to be doing a CroftCon in uh, up in Orin uh, the at the Orinda Theater in Orinda up by the Bay Area. And there we are, what is fifty some odd years later, and we're still doing Lidsville stuff. So it's like it never it never leaves.
0: Oh, that's, that's so funny. Yeah. You probably punched in the air after watching that movie. Like oh, I could have been me. It could have been me.
1: It's crazy. I mean, I, I you know, I, I never wanted, to, I was never an actor. I was the kid who could act. It came, it came naturally to me. It was never a career. The only, the only thing that kind of happened in my life back when I was 18 was it was the last year of the lottery for Vietnam. And I had a very low number and with the people that can remember this, the first hundred, the lowest hundred birth dates mean you were going to get drafted my number was 41 and my best friend's number was 44 so we both pretty much were convinced we were going to go die in vietnam you know that was you know we just figured and so what i did was they changed the voting law from 21 to 18 when i was just turning 19 so i petitioned the courts to change that law for kid actors to be able to get their money out because i said hey if you're you know if you're 18 you're going to go to war and, and they, they, they you can vote at 18 you can go die at 18 you should be able to get your money at 18 which they agreed and then they got that law changed but problem was they gave me my money i thought i was going to die so i went blew it all like in no time and then i went up for the induction for my medical uh, examination and i failed it because i had a bad knee from a skiing accident so i wasn't going to go anyway. So, so here I go, well, this didn't work out well at all because, uh, you know, I blew the money. I'm not going to Vietnam. Uh, and one thing led to another. And that's kind of how I just sort of phased out of the Hollywood business all at the same time. It was like the summer of 71, 72.
0: I wonder if Butch Patrick took American Graffiti that he, if he would have been in Star Wars, though. Big Star Wars. <laughs> that would have been great to see as uh, as Butch Patrick. Again, big Star Wars guy. Big Munsters guy, big Star Wars guy. So... <laughs>
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the funny thing about this, uh, talk about a story is Paul LaMette, who, Big John Milner, was offered the part of Han Solo, and he turned it down.
0: Yeah, I, I always hear about that, like actors and actresses always being like that, but then you look back, you're like, were they meant to be or not? But obviously they weren't because they didn't take it. So yeah. at, your career would have been probably different. Was that? Your career probably would have been, could have been worse if you took American graffiti.
1: I love, I love what I did. I worked 15, 16 years in the business, had a good window from 60 to 74. Couldn't have asked for a better time to be alive. Um, Great cars, great music, great TV, movies. I'm I'm very blessed.
0: All right, sir. We're going to end with this. I'm going to do a lot of months' questions real quick. Is that okay with you? Sure. Yeah. All right. Pat Priest or Beverly Owen? I love Pat Priest
1: very much, but I had a huge crush on Beverly Owen. Yeah? So yes, Beverly Owen, yeah.
0: Wasn't she your first like
1: kiss on the cheek? Beverly was wonderful. She actually drew, she had one of my favorite memories was on her day off. She knew I had a crush on her. She drove her little Volkswagen all the way down to Gardena to take me all the way back to Hollywood to go see Mary Poppins. When Mary Poppins had just come out, and it was
0: like I like to tell people that
1: was my first date, it was with, with Beverly Owen, Marilyn Munster.
0: That's fantastic. Um, do you hate Batman, especially Adam West for what happened?
1: No, Batman, I love Adam West. Adam's <laughs> great. Uh, you know it was it's, it was so campy and so funny and and, and and it was a great way to go off there. you know it was, it was a transitional period. color came in. Batman was strong and it was to our credit, they put their best show up against us and you know eventually uh, they won. That was the fourth show that ABC had put up against us. So we were doing very, very well until Batman.
0: Yeah. For people that don't know Batman came in color. One of the f- was it the first show in color?
1: It was one of the first ones. It might have been the I think Walt Disney's World of Color and Batman. Yeah, they were like the the go-to showcase, the new technology. Yeah.
0: So yeah, the Munsters were black and white. So anyone out there that uh, Batman came in and just didn't didn't bode well for the Munsters, unfortunately. No. Uh the Munsters coach or Drag a Dracula?
1: Well, I have one of each. Um, the coach is like the original minivan. It's cool to drive and very recognizable and has suspension. The Dragula is great at a drag strip where it's very smooth because it's solid axle. Ones it's apples and oranges, they're both great respectively, but I suppose if I could only have
0: one, I'd take the coach. I love it. Yeah. I feel like the coach, you can have multiple people in it. Exactly. Yeah. I like that. Um, have you ever been to that house? I think it's in like Texas or something. That's like the monster's house. Like some person like recreated it.
1: Yeah, Sandra and Chuck McKee. I was actually there the first year they opened it up to the public. Uh, it's been about 20 years now. Amazing house. Must, uh, it's a must-see for anybody that ever makes it to Dallas. It's in the Dallas suburb area, Waxahachie. Uh, they have tours. She does a once. Now she's doing these incredible murder mysteries. This place is a must-see place. I mean, it's, it's just amazing, and they're very nice people. To answer your question, I've been there many, many times. What is it about the Munsters that people love to this day? Um, I th- I think it's a combination of a couple things. Number one, I think they really enjoy the whole look and the special effects and the concept of this spooky old house with you know a dungeon and and a and a, a dragon under the stairs and a cat that brows like a lion. Yeah. But mostly, I think they enjoy how this very odd looking family of Universal monsters that they were all familiar with it comes off as Aussie and Harriet. Or like you know, or you know, uh, the father knows best situation. It's a very down to earth, family valued show with very good comedic
0: entertainment value, but it has family values. That show was was a great. They they did everything at the right time. And my favorite things about that show was the gag of Marilyn Munster being the ugliest one out of the family. I think that is one of the most genius concepts in any show of all time, and it's still funny.
1: Well, you know, and there's that the one episode where I grew a beard and the beard dissolves, and Herman gives me the little talk about it's not you know what you look like—you're tall and short, fat or thin, or ugly or handsome, like your father, or you know what color your skin is. That particular little um, father and son chat on the, the the value of strength of your character and the size of your heart uh, is got gets like a hundred million views every year. It's yeah. it's incredible. Considered to be like one of the, the best little, um, especially in this day and age, how everybody's going crazy. And it, 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 it's it's uh, one of the best. But Herman Munster was a great TV dad. Oh, I mean, yeah. it, was, it, was done. it was done by the Leave it the Beaver producers who had basically come forward with the first successful sitcom that was driven by a child of the look at the world through a child's point of view.
0: I I love Herman Munster, and I think what I loved I, I, I would watch it on Nick at Night. Obviously, I'm a young cat. I'm only 36. Like I loved it. One of the funniest things he said. He had one of the best laps. I might be butchering. And he goes, "What has four wheels and flies?" A garbage truck, and I and I still use that to this day. And I think it's one of the easiest and funniest jokes to tell, like young kids. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah
1: the, the, the stupid old yuck yuck jokes. You know, it's like when he's saying, you know, what what's what what can keep. Uh, uh, something quiet in the car your hand over your wife's mouth yeah. you
0: know like <laughs> oh i absolutely love it his laugh was great too um yeah. what else what else do i got do you did you keep anything from the set the original set no i used to
1: bring stuff home and give it away to the local kids oh, you're just uh oh.
0: you're, you're a saint butch patrick is a saint
1: I, you know, I, I was living it to me. It, I'm, I'm not one of those collector people. Some people are very organized. I was always disorganized, but I always, I always really enjoyed the, the, the fact that's one of the reasons today why when I go to like today, I'm at New Jersey Horicon and downstairs is the number one Dragula being set up. How blessed is it when you could go sit at a table and, get up and interact with someone who you now are part of the unbeknownst to me i've been part of people's living rooms and their fond memory bases for generations with their grandparents who love the show they watched it they now they watch it in reruns or they bought the dvd and all these people engage with you and all they want to do is share a happy moment that you brought to them i mean that's like positive energy on steroids constantly and how can you not enjoy that and it's literally i you know and people say don't you ever get tired of it i go you know no i really don't and if i did and when i do i will not do it anymore because if i'm not having a good time it certainly isn't fair to the people who are coming to the table for you to be grumpy and i've been next to grumpy celebrities you know when they do this and it's like what is wrong with you you know how can you how can you get you get you know check your ego at the door and, and if you don't if you're not having fun It's not fair to the people coming to the table. It really isn't. So, you know, each their own. But um, I'm very blessed that I've, you know, I've I've stumbled onto a show a long time ago, family values, uh, entertainment level, that people love meeting you. And all you got to do is smile and, and be nice. And everybody walks away happy.
0: You've lived a great life. Now, with the new Rob Zombie movie coming out, I know you've been pretty close with him recently, and uh you're probably excited about the movie. I know you're not gonna be able to answer this, but do you have a cameo in that movie?
1: Can't answer it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, I knew you weren't gonna answer that, but are you excited for that movie to come out?
1: Yes, yes, I'm excited about it. I I'm really excited when I saw the PG rating. Same. I kind of see I didn't really you know, but when he came out with that, I knew it was in my thoughts i knew it was going to be pg but i couldn't actually confirm it because i didn't really know but i knew that he was the right guy for the job because um number one uh universal wouldn't allow him to go too far dark on it number one and it took him 20 years to get to this point and number two is a lot of people have a persona um on stage or on camera that they're not, isn't really like that. Uh, you know, Howard Stern's a very nice guy when he's off mic, you know, and Alice Cooper, you know, it, it's just, these are normal, good people. Um, Alan's a wonderful Christian guy. I mean, he's he's just a wonderful person, one of the nicest people you'd ever want to meet. But he puts on a very cool stage show that's unlike his persona. It's right. an act. So with Rob, when I, went, when I went to Rob's house with my Munster coach to take him for a spin and him and Sherry Moon came out, it was very much like, you know, going to see Mrs. Cleaver. You know, she comes out with iced tea and, and a little sundress, <laughs> a little hippie dress. And it's like, oh, this is nothing like you guys are on camera. Mm-hmm. And it was wonderful. So I knew, I knew for a fact that, um, and then a, a good friend of mine, Danny Roebuck, who plays Grandpa in the movie, has, was keeping me up on details. That's cool. So I knew through him what direction the movie was going.
0: And obviously Rob Zombie, huge monsters guy.
1: This movie's going to kill. Yeah. It's going to, in a really good way. Though no, it's going to be, extreme. it's, 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 it's a very long movie. It's like two hours and 38 minutes, No way. but I've seen footage and I've seen where he's going with it and uh, it's going to be great. It really is.
0: Now, is it black and white or in color? It's in color, right? Color. Nice. color. Fantastic. Fantastic. All right, Butch Patrick, I know what I was going to ask from earlier. So you're very uh, memory oriented guy, more than materialistic, obviously, right? What was that? You're, like, you're more about memories more than materialistic things. Like yeah, you, yeah, yeah. You get, I like yeah. that. Only, what I like, I, I try to collect stuff. The
1: problem is i was always been very nomadic, and I never had any place to put stuff. So it was easier for me. And then my mom wasn't very good about keeping stuff. So, you know, things would just, it just never happened. So, yes, I'm, I'm more about giving stuff away than keeping it myself. I
0: love it. Now we're going to end with this. I ask these questions for all my guests butch patrick think of him as a boxer wrestler uh ufc fighter he comes out to a crowd i gotta think it might be the Munsters theme but i feel like you might have a different answer what song plays for butch patrick what is his theme song oh my gosh
1: uh what is my theme song That's yeah i never really thought about a theme song i'm a big beatles fan uh what could be a good beatles song uh Let's see what's uh <laughs> I'm glad got I got me. you. I'm glad I got a question
0: that you've never gotten before.
1: you got me uh especially in a in an arena like that, I'm not really an arena type person. I'm more yeah. of a battle type guy that wouldn't sit well into the thing um well, you know, I was always a car guy, so I figured a hard-driving song that I would probably want to have uh, playing as I walked down. The, the ramp into the ring would
0: be like Deep Purple's Highway Star. Perfect. I like it. I like how we have an answer instead of the Munster's answer. That's perfect. Now, okay. one, more, one more thing I meant to ask. I'm a huge Simpsons guy. How was it being on The Simpsons? Very. It was very disappointing.
1: Pointing because I love being on the show, but I went out there and there was no other voice people there. I was by myself in a room with 16 microphones doing, whoa, doing these stupid things, being directed to do voiceover work with nothing to uh, bounce off of. And you're just isolated in a room and they give you good stuff. I was happy to do it, but I didn't meet anybody.
0: Oh, that's a shame. I would have pumped to meet everybody. Yeah, I was a little disillusioning. All right, sir, what are three things that you're grateful for today? my sobriety, my health, my family. I love it. Easy, perfect, and to the point. I love that, sir. Butch Patrick, a.k.a. Eddie Munsa, you don't know how much this meant to me to chat with you, one of my favorite TV shows of all time. I got tattoos to prove it, Herman and Lily. I'm going to have to get an Eddie Munster tattoo now. Okie dokie. <laughs> Thank you so much, Butch. I hope you have a wonderful day. Peace. podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. If you are feeling suicidal, please dial 911.
1: The lesson I want you to learn is it doesn't matter what you look like. You can be tall or short or fat or thin or ugly or handsome like your father (laughs) Uh, you can be black or yellow or white It, it doesn't matter what does matter is the size of your heart and the strength of your character